Jele i Kalnageri. Ju ajer si quo gjith antelic zheni nin ju antris zheni fan. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in the great and rainy state of Wisconsin is William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey with its uh, magnificent awes is Mike Lentine. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not sure I got the right vowel sound. Can you, can you demonstrate it for us? The awe? Yeah. Yes, the awe, like hawk versus hawk, or, uh, I don't know, um, caught versus caught, hence the caught-caught merger. Right. That very delightful uh-huh. awe sound, the awesome New Jersey awe. Okay. Except it's, it sounds it sounds diphthongized, but we can, uh, <laughs> we can yeah. address that issue later. Yes. Yeah, well, ha- I, I, I don't understand what the, it's a diphthong... But I can't understand. I don't know where it comes from. So where where it starts. So anyway, <laughs> yes, the very nebulous. I'm playing injured today and uh, being a little strange. But uh, although my ankle really shouldn't affect my head. Anyway, very true. But, <laughs> Not um, unless you're taking very scary painkillers. No, 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 no. That 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 has not happened to me since I had my wisdom teeth out, and I threw those away on the first day. The wisdom teeth or the medicine, probably. The medicine. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you'll have more um, information about that possibly at the end of the show in the outtakes yeah. because yeah. we talked about it a little bit beforehand. So. We're going to go right in and talk about... We're actually doing linguistics topics again. Hooray. We didn't, like, change things forever. It's just the last... I I hope people did enjoy last week. It seems like um, it's, it's, it's um, sort of an unusual thing to us in that that episode is actually out as we're recording. Uh-huh. And there's no... There seems to be positive responses. So that works. So in a year we so can have anyway. another Conlanger's rant episode. Yes. Yes. I don't know what we'll so, rant about. Anyway. So let's talk about topicalization. <clears throat> yes. And so topicalization is kind of a funny thing. It's one of these ways that that you put an important thing in the discourse into a privileged spot. But there's a whole lot of extra stuff that goes into it. Uh, William, why don't you take it away, since you have a bunch of notes here. Mm. Right. Part of the fun with topics and topicalization and topic comment structure is that it is sort of conceptually straightforward, but because no European language is topic prominent, it's really hard to explain to people and to talk about. Mm. Um. I mean, the, the, the model is really simple, is that you announce a discourse topic, and then you say something about it. Pretty straightforward. You would think. <laughs> um, we'll talk about various things as we go on here, and we'll, we'll try to come up with the example. In English, you, we don't do this, so we come up with these ham-fisted kind of clefting structures, like, as for him... <laughs> he, right? He has never read that book. Well, that's ridiculous, right? The as for is too heavy... Um, many languages just move things around to topicalize them without any sort of other kind of morphology, although that can be mixed. So it's a little hard to talk about. Um, if you want to think about it one way is that a topic, and here I'm talking about the grammatical thing, not, mm-hmm. not a general sort of discourse talk, but a topic, grammatically speaking, is a weird kind of dexis. You're taking something some topic of some discourse topic of all of the possible discourse topics available to you and the person you're talking to, and you've picked one out because you're about to say some things about it. Um, so it, it, it's kind of a pragmatic thing more than it is a grammatical thing in many languages. Mm-hmm. So, right in the simplest case, 
you announce what you're going to talk about and you say something about it. But there are all sorts of weird things that follow from that, and that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. Um, one of the phrases you'll hear me use is topic prominent language versus subject prominent language. Yeah. Um, lots of languages can topicalize, but still aren't topic prominent. Mm-hmm. I mean, even English, mm-hmm. we can sort of we can sort of do it. Um, and the classic topic prominent languages are things like Japanese, Chinese, um, Lao, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suppose before we start talking about details, I'll just hit one last sentence. Topics are about discourse and subjects are about verb alignment structure. In many of these languages, you can have a topic immediately followed by a subject and then the rest goes of the sentence comes along. Um, yeah. So, go ahead. The topic, the topic is not a morphosyntactic role. Is what you're saying, basically? Not, is, no, not morphosyntactic. It may have some overt marking that looks like a case, but it's still not the same thing as. And um, or, verb, verbs aren't conjugated to agree with the topic necessarily. No, 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 no. To line up with the subject. Yeah, right. the the topic, so the, the topic as I understand it, could also fill any particular noun phrase role in a sentence as well as being the topic. It's just that. In certain languages, you're putting, you put the topic first. In Absolutely right. Whatever Absolutely right. It, so, whatever role it applies to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of us are used to languages like Chinese and Japanese that are topic heavy, but that is by no means the case. You can have some pretty morphologically complex languages that are topic prominent. And as, um, as you say, you can still have something in a funky case role. It might be the, patient, it might be the ergative, it might be the absolutive or whatever, that has been shunted into topic position. Um, but why would you do that? And we can talk about some things that, that follow from having a topic-heavy or a topic-prominent language. Yeah. Anything we want to say about the basics before we head into some of the nitty-gritty? No, not really. Why don't we just go ahead and, and, okay. and jump in? So one thing that is very common in topic prominent languages is that they rarely have a passive, or if they do have it, they don't use it very often. Okay. Uh-huh. And this sort of makes sense because the passive is a tool for maintaining discourse cohesion to move to the front, namely a subject, the thing you care most about. But in a topic prominent language, you already have a mechanism to do that. So there's much not much need for a passive. Yeah, okay. if you can just shunt the the topic to the front, whether it's subject or object or whatever, then why, why would you have any need for a passive voice? Right. Right. I mean, it's still there. Although in many of these languages, the passive tends to have a more unpleasant overtone, like the Vietnamese special bad news passive, as I like to call it. I think the Japanese has <laughs> one, an, uh, a version passive or something like that. Right. Right. It's the same sort of idea that I think yeah, even so. in, um, in Chinese, it's, considered the passive is often is has sort of a bad connotation to it too it's something unfavorable yeah that that may just be something that my my chinese teacher told me that i don't know if it's really true i would guess that native speakers of english want to overuse the passive in chinese (laughs) yeah i think maybe that might be (laughs) right they're not used to the topic comment structure anyway um so even though you can have languages that are pro-drop, you don't typically drop the topical. Okay. Okay, so the topic... Because the whole point there. of the topic is that you're announcing what you're about to talk about. You can't mm. drop that. <laughs> and I figure once the topic is established, you don't have to restate it, right? Right, right. Once it's already there. I mean, it's really interesting just how much of human communication depends on context. Mm. If I walk up to a friend in a coffee shop and while I walk up to them, they put a book down, I can walk up and I can say, so how is it? <laughs> and they know yeah. absolutely that I'm talking about the book they just were fussing with. Well, they'll assume so. And if you're not, they'll be very confused. Right. <laughs> and then I will have broken a Gricean maxim. A what? <laughs> oh, Grice talks. He's sort of a theorist who talks about what he calls maxims of conversation. It's not like... They're not rules in the usual sense, the rules of, of understanding about how we talk about what's relevant, but we don't uh, need to, to go into that. The whole point is of the topical is you have to pick something out of the common ground and you have to announce it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, there is usually, no, I'm going to say this. There is always some sort of special marking for a topic. Okay. M- movement, a particle, but there isn't necessarily 
special marking for the subject. Okay, so in a, in a when topic you say move, when you say movement, that may, makes it make sense to me because special marking. I I was thinking initially that it would have to be like a particle or something, but no, I know that Chinese it just moves to the front right. or moves before the verb. I mean, um, when I when I say movement, I may be making a mistake. It may make no uh-huh. sense at all to think about the topic as participating in some sort of hairy tree structure that generatives love so much. It may simply be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, but movement is easy to talk about when you want to indicate that something will always be first in an utterance. So it's just talking about if you're talking about movement, it might just be that it's there already. It didn't necessarily move there, but placement and. Uh, Right, 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 right. Location, so, kind of. So I should be careful yeah, saying that. But that's a where, theoretical where, where issue. We don't need to. The, <laughs> yeah, that's that. We don't have to go too far into that. Just basically, position in the sentence might be the only way that the topic is marked. Right, and that's but most common. There's, all those. Yeah, but there's some way that you know this is the the topic. Yes, is right. what you're getting at. Um, now, uh-huh. go ahead. I was going to say, but you were saying that uh, in these topic prominent languages, subject is not always oh, um, like marked the same way, or it's not always marked. Period. Right, and it, it can be dropped. <laughs> yeah. Um, the topic is the default co-referent in gapping. So what I mean by that is, if I say the sentence, "The man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse." <laughs> yeah, you will notice that in the second clause and got kicked by horse, I dropped the subject. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. we assume that the subject is the same from clause to clause. That's a rule of English grammar. In topic prominent languages, anything you leave out in subsequent clauses is going to refer to the topic, not to the subject. Uh, that's interesting. Okay, And that sort of makes sense. The topic, you announce what you're going to talk about, and you might want to say several sentences about that topic. So uh-huh. that will be the assumed element in the subsequent clauses. Hmm. Now, um, talk, just a quick question about gapping in, um, is it always a subject in like, even if it's, um, absolutive and ergative, does it always agree with the subject in those gaps? You don't know from language to language might be different in most of the languages of Australia. It's always the absolutive, mm-hmm. which is why you get things like anti-passives and inverse mood voices. Mm-hmm. To make that work. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in many, many topic prominent languages, not all, but most of them, topics must be definite. Okay. And that sort of makes sense, right? A topic does not introduce a new subject. A topic, like I said, is a kind of discourse, dexis. You pick something out of the common ground and say, I'm about to talk about that now. Hmm. Okay. One consequence of this is that topic prominent languages are much less likely to have a definite article. You don't need it. What? That's <laughs> nice. Right? You've already got a way. If you've topicalized something, then you're saying, I know what I'm talking about, and I assume all of y'all listening to me know what I'm talking about, so I'm about to move on. Hmm. Right? That's all definite yeah. it is, right? It says this is a, a, a known or recoverable discourse topic. Hmm. Um, although you can also, right, if something is recoverable certain generic kinds of information can be topicalized too. Like, for example, the weather, certain kinds of, you know, events and cultural things that are always going on. Um, so long as you can assume that your listener will know what you're talking about, then it can be topicalized. Well, I mean, that sort of follows the same rules that definiteness Exactly, applies. exactly. Because uh, you can, in English, you can make something definite that is something people are aware of i'm sure that people in madison can just talk about the lake and you right. know which lake it is right well there are two of them so we can't but yes uh, yeah or some, well, sometimes okay. uh i found out that when i went down to southern jersey and i told people oh I'm, i went to the city and they're like oh okay did you get a philly cheesesteak and i'm like no no i mean new york is the city <laughs> they're like, no it's philly i'm like oh silly me <laughs> Um, sort of my, my favorite example of a recoverable definite discourse topic is the sentence, um, I went to see a movie yesterday. The line was very long. Ah. <laughs> oh, yes. Right? The line. Okay. I've not mentioned the line, but that's just a shared experience of going to movies. Mm. Yes. 
All right. Um, so I haven't talked too much about topic marking apart from having it appear at the front of a sentence. Um, I want to mention the Lao language, mm-hmm. especially. It's kind of neat. It has five topic markers. What's neat about them is it is obvious that they are related to demonstrative adjectives. Um, at the same time, though, they've been so grammaticalized that you can have a phrase that is both topicalized and has a demonstrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the different um, topic markers are in the grammar I read labeled as general, non-proximal, distal, far, and peripheral. So they play various sort of discourse subtleties, right? You organize the importance of information by choosing the correct topic marker. Do you um, have like a paper for this or something? Because I'm very curious as what the difference between non-proximal and distal would be. Um, I assume it's the normal three-way distinction. Mm. General mm. is um, proximal plus um, sort of common knowledge stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't have a paper. I was using... Pages from Amazon Preview and Google Books Preview of Allow Grammar that I did not get to see all pages of. Oh, that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. But I do not need Allow Grammar, so I did not buy one. Yeah. <laughs> but why do you ever... You, you never really need them, I suppose. You need all of them. <laughs> no? I, I, already, I have a, a giant dictionary of grammaticalization that I just spent money on, so I, I don't need Allow Grammar. Um so the neat and one last thing that's interesting about Lao is because it has overt topic marking, the topic can either appear at the right edge or the left edge of the rest of the clause. Oh, so that's a that's an unusual thing. Um, it is a little topics, bit. Yeah. Topics are tend to be on the left, right? That is, yeah, yeah, the yeah, beginning yeah. of the sentence. Exactly. For, um, but to have it on right or left. Is sort of a curious thing to have. I thought it, but Although, I, I assume I assume that that sort of practice is really only um, permissible in languages that have some sort of overt topic marking. I could be wrong, but my guess is it's more common. Yeah, than I, I would suspect that if there's no topic marking, it they'll choose one or the other. Right. Um, what was I going to say? Earlier in the show, I mentioned that the use of topics can be very hard to learn because it's Mm -hmm. hard to give rules for them. Almost everyone can understand them. Like if you're learning Chinese or or Japanese, you can understand them when they're spoken to you almost always. But learning how to produce them correctly is a lot harder. Mm. Almost any role, case or prepositional that you might can imagine in a clause can be topicalized, including in some languages, things like prepositional phrases. Yeah. But at the same time, the relationship may have no recognizable role at all, which is a lot harder to think about. So just as like information that's hanging in there, it doesn't really have a uh, place to dock onto your sentence there. But right. It limits it limits the statement you're about to make to a particular domain. But that's all. It can be very, very loose, Um, which is Um, kind of funny because it can cause interesting um, ambiguities. Okay. Uh, the, there's one uh, Burmese language called Lisu, and this is an example from the Wikipedia article where the sentence goes, people topic, dog bite. <laughs> In theory, there are two possible senses for this. Either people, they bite dogs, or people, dogs bite them. Ah. <laughs> so topicalization plus prodrop can give you all sorts of fun. Yeah. Now, um... If I can give just a little bit of personal experience, I know that, um, one thing that seems weird to me, and I can, th- I think I can handle the topicalization in, uh, Mandarin Chinese a little in some cases, but in not all, not in all cases. And one of the reasons is there's actually, if I understand it right, like two different topic positions. You can have it fronted. Or you can have the topic be before the verb, after the subject, which is, Whoa. um, like, like, um, I don't actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually sure if it's a topic position or a focus position. Now that I think of it, like, um, if I would I strongly say, suspect that of being a focus position. 
Like I, it, if I say 我中文学了四年了, uh, mm. that's I Chinese studied uh, four years um, with a, a, a continuative marking. But um, it's it that may be actually a focused position. That sounds to, that that seems to be very very focused likely. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? So, no, but it's easy to to confuse those two, actually. Oh, I would think so. Now, just a quick thing. Um, I know we probably have mentioned this, but uh, focus versus topic. Topic is going to be known or recoverable information, old news. Mm. Um, whereas focused information is much more likely either to be new, mm-hmm. newly introduced, or in contrast to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we use the word emphasis, but then William will come and beat you if you do. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at being beaten. I'm laughing at the William coming. Yes, William okay. being vicious. So, um, focused elements cannot be topicalized. Okay. Um, again, because what they're doing, drawing a special contrast of attention or their new, um, sort of fights with the definition of a topic. Now, there is this idea of contrastive topics that some people wave about, but that's deep magic that I would rather we not try to figure out in this show. Hmm. Um, probably you can safely Google contrastive topics and, and get information and examples of that. So some common patterns for topic comment stru- construction that will, you know, maybe help you think about this if you don't, if you've not had the benefit of studying Chinese or Japanese is part of the whole constructions where English or Romance languages use a partitive kind of construction. Um, topic comment languages will simply announce the whole and uh, then give the, cl- give the clause with the part. So, again, we have a nice example on one of the Wikipedia pages. As for fish, red snapper is most delicious. Hmm. Right? So you've taken a general topic, namely fish, and then you've picked one out, the red snapper, as being the one you like best. Hmm. Or another one is um, that as for that palm tree, its leaves are big. <laughs> or the one they give for Chinese, uh, so this person height is tall. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. So instead of using That's, a possessive I, I, construction. I, I hear that all the time, actually. Uh, or I've, I've heard that quite a bit. Jigarun particularly as a as a topic with a, a partitive thing going on there. Right, and then you say something about them. And I think that is sort of an easy gateway into thinking about topic prominence, if you've not studied yeah. these languages before. Mm. So you can have topicalization in other languages. Um, they're not topic prominent, but they can still allow you to do this. But they may restrict what you can topicalize. Mm-hmm. For example, in Indonesian, only parts of the subject noun phrase can be topicalized. So either one of the either one of these partitive constructions that I just gave an example of, or the subject itself. So and do they, parts um, of the subject noun phrase, right? And what mechanism do they use for topicalization? Do you know? Just I, as I recall, it just appears at the left edge. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um, we have well, a. Uh-huh. I found a great article that, which gives some examples of, of how that restriction works. Now, here, here's a question. Maybe it's covered in an article. In English, do we have any sort of restrictions on what we can topicalize? And what's an example of a not of an of an of a disallowed topicalization? So you can hear kind of what it's what's not allowed. Uh, it's so hard for me to think of English topicalizing in the first place that I don't. I I have no. I can't even construct an example. Honestly, um, with the clefting structures that English has, we can basically topicalize anything, but it gets to sound really, really weird when you start going into, like, uh, objects of prepositions and stuff and trying to topicalize them. And and Um, we have passive. mm. Yeah. In English, we mainly do it with the as for blah, 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 right? Yeah, but that just sounds horrible. That's a dodge that we use, but I don't know how often we would say something like that naturally. Yeah. As for as for this, as for yeah. Um, I mean yeah, that that has um, that has pragmatic overtones that aren't very neutral. Yeah, it's um, 
it almost it has sort of a sort of um I don't know. It's an explanatory feel to it. Uh explanatory and possibly and possibly um a little unhappy about things. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a negative connotation sometimes. I suppose. Yeah. I mean I'm thinking like if you say like, you know, like as for this pair of shoes, I bought them at the store. Or is that uh is that leftist locate no left cleft no. What yes. is it? Like- well, yeah, right. But here, yes. if you use as for with a mm-hmm. person, yeah, does that sound very nice? Well, anyway, that's an English syntax thing. We don't need to worry. solve yeah. that here. As for John, yeah. he doesn't like to eat eggs either. But that's the, that's the subject. But if you're saying like as for John, I saw I saw him at the movies. That sounds yeah. Cool. You can say I that. Think, I think this is an a, an example of pretty much any language will have a way to express pretty much anything. Yeah, but it may be using bizarre circumlocutions that don't make a whole lot of sense. Now that I was going to mention something about with um, you just mentioned that every language may, probably has a way to do this. Most languages, at least, but um, in languages that are topic prominent, is a sentence ungrammatical if it doesn't have a topic in it, or is it just very ob- uh, ambiguous or vague? Um, that depends one hundred percent on context. Mm. In some ways, a topic is not a normal part of your sentence. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It's a linguistic event that limits the applicability of the statement you're about to make. Okay. Um, so either there's already an existing discourse topic floating around. Um, no, that's the only reason I can think of you would use a, a sentence that's not been topicalized. Or you're introducing something new. Mm-hmm. Now, for... Um I've heard of uh oh uh, maybe I'm not talking maybe this is something totally unrelated but um switch reference does that have anything to do with switching the topic? No. Okay. We had one we had one interesting conlang that we looked at a month or two ago that had what looked to me like switch topic but I've never yeah. seen a natural language that has something like that. Hmm. Switch reference is interesting. We should talk about sort of uh gapping and discourse cohesion sometime. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another topic. Um, <laughs> you had. I want to just throw this in, throw throw this out because you have it in your notes, but you're like uh, questioning whether we should even mention it because obviously it's very much a theory thing. But you were th- you're saying some people think that subjects are grammaticalized topics. Yep, that's and the the evidence for that is that, for example, some languages do not allow indefinite subjects. That's really that's really odd to think of, kind of. Yeah, English allows is very loosey goosey, and most Indian European languages are. But there are some languages that will not allow you to have an indefinite subject, especially of transitive verbs. Now, will they not allow you to have it, or will it just be there's no way to express that? There is no way to express that. Yeah. Only, mm-hmm. only, only, only. Typically, pronouns can be the subjects of verbs in those languages. Hmm. That's really odd to think of. That's interesting. It turns out that a sentence like a man gave me a flyer yesterday mm-hmm. in natural fluent speech, a sentence like that is vanishingly rare anyway. It sounds perfectly good and grammatical in English, but we almost never say something like that naturally. We'll say, I was walking and I saw a man and he handed me something, right? We introduce, yeah, we introduce discourse topics before we have them do things. Yeah, it's kind of, it's true. That does kind of, if you say like, you know, a tree fell down, it's kind of like you expect that you already know what tree or it feels a little bit like there's something needing to be explained there. Right, right. It sounds like a a sentence that comes from a novel. Hmm. Exactly, exactly. Written language can be a little bit weird. Hmm. But, But the point of this is that think about what we do in English with our subjects. Mm -hmm. The man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse. Here, the co-reference and, and gapping requires us to use a passive in the second clause to speak normal, <laughs> non-weird English um, that has not been corrected by an English teacher who doesn't understand what the passive is for. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so in some sense, uh. we've announced by putting the man in the subject role, we've announced that this is the most important part of the conversation at the moment. Um, and should be assumed as the subject in subsequent clauses. The topic fulfills exactly the same role. You select some m- matter 
from the universe of possible discourse topics that you and the person you're talking to could reasonably assume. And now, then you say things about it. Here's a question on that. I just thought of, um, if you were saying like, you know, like, um, a TV was purchased by my mom, right? Mm-hmm. And then you want to say, and it broke, but you, you can't leave out the it necessarily. Is that because of the English needs a, a subject? But then why can you say, and got hit by a horse? Like you can't say, well, I mean, because, I mean, that's, uh, and maybe I'm just trying to poke at, Ooh, that's you're, po- you're, you're poking at this. It's highly unnatural to put an inanimate object at the top of your discourse hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though, even though it's a TV, you care more about the fact that it's your mom's TV. Mm. My mom got a TV and it broke. So you still have to mention it because, um, yeah, uh, there's, there's, this is why this should be a whole other topic because that gets a whole lot (laughs) more, uh, more complicated as you go along. I think, um, this, uh, topic has been a very William centric topic. I, I, I've noticed that me and, and Mike have been kind of not talking a whole lot right now, but um You guys know I Chinese, see... you can throw things in. Yeah. Well the thing is, I speak Chinese and I understand uh topic fronting uh that occurs in Chinese, but I just can't think of examples right off the top of my head easily. I, I think that's true. Because a topic is Topicalization is working at the discourse level. A single one-off sentence to describe it, it sounds a little weird. It's, yeah. it's interesting because um, I can, I mean, I can think of examples where I'd use it and examples where I'd think it'd be topical, topicalization related, but um, it just seems really natural and it's almost like a. In my, when I try to translate it internally, it's kind of like a. As for this, it's like highlighting that topic and then commenting on it, like like this shoe, I, as for this this shoe, this book, I just bought it. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Or um, yeah. You have to have something like um in William's uh, Jiggerin example. Okay. I expect there to be a a person to point to, not not literally point to, but to um refer to, that refer to, that's reference. like in the room that you can refer to when when you're talking about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem is, at least when I was taking Chinese, we learned how to topicalize by osmosis. We were simply exposed to it enough and we got braver and brave enough to try to use it more often. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to explain. I think the problem is that a lot of times when I'm in a language class, the people, the other people learning a language are not linguistically savvy necessarily. So they don't use terms like, okay, this is what topical, this is topicalization and you have this grammar particle and it does this. You may get a little bit when they talk about conjugation or declension or particles but a lot of times the more linguistically sophisticated terminology doesn't get used because people who are learning a language may not be linguists or even 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 without using terms like that i think it's sometimes easier to learn it by exposure than to give rules part of the problem is it, it really seems like topic prominence and subject prominence is as always part of a continuum where every language follows its own path mm-hmm it's very hard to, uh, I think the, the osmosis thing is a, a big thing because, because the only way that you can actually construct examples, I think, of topics and make them make sense is to have a dialogue. Right. And maybe that's something that we need to encourage some conlangers to do is write dialogues in their conlangs to figure out how all these different discourse things work. Now, I was, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go uh, ahead. Um, I was just saying, like, I was thinking of doing a conlang where, I guess, the topic would come first, but then the verb would be conjugated on whether the whether it was the subject was before or after the verb. And I don't know if that's necessarily a. Hang on one sec. Sorry. So what I was saying was, um, it's not necessarily the verb agreeing with the topic. It's just the topic being fronted, and then the verb saying, "Hey, the subject's either the first thing or this thing I'm following me." Do you know what I mean? No. Yeah. It sounds desperately like you're getting close to an Austronesian alignment system. Okay, I'm, I, I don't have any exposure to the Austronesians, so um, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you were um, in Taiwan. There must be some of them around. Yes, but I, I, yeah. didn't really, I didn't really have too much exposure to Taiwanese or uh, any other languages over there. But anyways, what I was getting at with that and how it ties into this is that the uh, topicalization, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess what I was saying that, you know, exposure to it and it, the context... I don't know. I may have just 
commented on it because it came up in my head earlier, and now it seems to be very much unrelated, so my, I'm having a hard time explaining why it's related. <laughs> okay. So my we're getting, we're, we're getting really loopy on this for some reason. We're, we're just like, because it's hard to talk about. In circles. Yeah. So. It's really, it's a tough thing. Yeah. Do you think maybe we can move to our featured conlang? Yes. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We, My apologies. So, <laughs> to, uh, to, to move away from the, uh, the, the crazy talking and, <laughs> and try to, uh, make some sense in this episode, we do have a featured conlang. It is Talmud. Ray. Uh, by Roman Rouse. She actually sent this, sent me an email saying, Hey, look at my language. And I thought, okay, we can feature this maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so starting off, phonology is fairly simple. I don't yeah. just looking at wait, the detailed contents. I'm is sorry. Is he using a theta for, for ch? Yes, he is with the, um, statement that it's derived from an aspirated T and has various, um, realizations in different dialects. Mm. Oh, okay. So I guess that makes sense. Since it resembles Greek and I do not want to be too narrow with my transcription, I use theta for this phoneme also because Greek is cool. Yes, I like that. <laughs> Greek is he, cool. He uses, he uses theta and phi. And he. And he. All of, all of them unnecessarily, but he likes Greek, so I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. And why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to me, the most interesting thing about this language from sort of the bird's eye view is that he goes through this very complicated process of derivational stuff, roots and, and all sorts of fun historical developmental stuff. While at the same time, there are one or two things about the language design that strike me as wildly unnatural. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, in particular, how he deals with uh, things that, well, he talks about signum, which we can get to. So it just seems to me very strange that the word for awake and the word for asleep would have the same consonantal roots and various kinds of ablaut and prefixing done to them. Mm-hmm. You said he talks about signum? Yeah, it's section 213. We can get to that in a bit. It, that just strikes me as tremendously unnatural. Oh, yes. While at the same time, we have all of this other sort of very naturalistic worry about Historical development and all of that. Ooh. Um, the number that he has, Paukel or Paukel, that's cool. Yeah. Mm. Um, I already mentioned he has various kinds of vowel grades. Yes. Yeah, is that what that E grade and zero uh, grade and all that is? Yep, yep. That's that someone's been doing their uh, Indo-European research. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what... You said to look at the, the, the A grade. And the A grade is kind of, oh no, there's a lot. Oh, I said to look at the A grade because there's a really hysterical sentence. Oh. Um, okay. Prototalic has always been a nominophile language, preferring nouns over verbs. But no judgment. Even if you are a verbophile yourself, you prob- some, probably some of your best friends are nominophiles, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's nice. I like it. Uh, so I just thought that was amusing. And then, yeah. Now, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the A grade, E grade, uh, I'm trying to read through. Is that, are those just, um, like, uh, different, I guess, I don't want to say conjugate, uh, declension paradigms or, um, paradigms where they just add an A or add that. Um, do you know what those grades are? Because I, I haven't gotten into Indo European uh, history. Um, they're typically involved in definitely derivational processes. Like, if you have a verb stem, how do you make it a noun? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, we have the stem ga means go and gane, which, um, makes a, a vowel shift means voyage, journey, or venture. Mm. Um, that's really typical of this stuff. Uh, in ancient Greek, you know, you had zero grade, E grade, and O grade. And a good, nice example from verbs is your perfective was zero grade. Your imperfective was E grade and your Stative um, was O grade. Yeah. With your participles, your masculine and neuter participles being uh, E grade and zero grade for the feminine or vice versa. I forget. 
because that that system was designed. The point is various kinds of grammar and morphology induce or require certain grades. And grades are just like paradigms, kind of. They're they're internal vowel changes. Okay. They're like stem changes. That's what I'm trying to pair it with in my head. Yeah. Mm, Hmm. So anyway, going further, he has... He has noun classes, mm-hmm. which trying to figure out what exactly her, his noun classes are is kind of hard to get at a glance with this document. Um, I had a hard time and still have a hard time figuring out what he's doing with both his nouns and verbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. I think it would have been easier if there had occasionally been sentence examples Mm. exemplifying some of what he's doing. He has, like, big text at the end, but it would have made my life easier if there were a few texts in the middle. And there's this section on signum, whatever whatever signum is. Right. Uh, is, that a, is that a unique word? I don't, I haven't heard, I don't think I've heard of it. Right. He's, he's taking Latin and having fun with it. The point is that he has these verb stems that, or, or will, no, not verb stems, stems that relate generically to various kinds of states. And then you have a positive pole and a negative pole. Uh, so, for example, okay. the root dlon, D-L-O-N, can either be dalon, which means awake, or dilon, which means asleep. Interesting. Mm. The stem hal can either be achal, which is alive, or ichal, which is dead. Okay. And he has a very funny poster about two-thirds of the way down where you have... um states that refer to both of those things. So he has <laughs> Eichal, which means both dead and alive. And then he has a funny poster about Schrodinger's yeah. cat in the language. That's cute. Very cute. Um, although he makes the point that that's a weird thing, and most of the time the phrase means dead or alive. Uh, as in wanted <laughs> dead or alive. Right. Right. Um, hmm. So, but I find that very surprising and strange. I mean, he, there's another page where he gives sort of um, an explanation historically for how this system developed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still surprised me. Well, that's, 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 that's part of the key here is if you have a weird thing going on, how did it come about? But still, it seems a little odd to have something that, at least something that's that regular in, right. in having... Uh, the positive and negative form. It seems the, the words sound too similar to me. It, it seems unstable. But, you know, I don't know who's supposed to be speaking this. It's supposed to be humans? <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Um, uh, what else? He has some interesting stuff going on with the verbs. That was kind of fun. I'm not going to go over a list of everything, but it's worth taking a look at. That's a good bit of uh, cases. An interesting thing, uh, his numbers... Uh, Six, seven, eight, nine, and ten are derived from one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> That's not, so, I mean, that happens. Yeah. If you start off with a base five system, which certainly can happen, then you expect six, seven, eight, nine, and ten to have some mix of regular production from those. Mm. Well, it happens. It's just, it's not something that shows up in a lot of conlangs. It's, it's an interesting thing that he, he, uh, added that in. Mm. Um, I'm not exactly sure how his higher numbers are being formed here. Uh, case yeah. postpositions. So, he actually has, um, so what is this? Basic and iambic? In the third paragraph, it mentions what the iambic is used for. The iambic postpositions are used after a stressed ultimate syllable. E.g. Okay. Mediar, but Casellar. And that's oh. not surprising to me. That's normal, right? You have mm-hmm. s- stress sensitivity for different kinds of conjugations and declensions. Yeah. That's, 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 that's kind of interesting. That he it's nice that, it's that. nice that he thought about that because many people don't. Yeah. And I like that he put it out like that because most people are just, you know, might show the alternation but not show what exactly, you know, the table for it's like. So that's right. Cool. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, what what interests me more is that, well, I guess it's just three nominatives with basic and iambic forms. But what are the three nominatives supposed to be? 
Are they different in some way? Or And also he has some odd cases like originative or, or origative or origative. What the heck? Origative and destinative and mutative and I'm wondering, um, it says locative, and then it has temporal and state of all in this, all between the same thick bars. I'm not sure if that's a formatting, um, thing, or if they're actually three separate things just with No, 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 they're derived from the form that they're related to. So the locative, temporal, and stative are all glommed together forms based on the accusative. Mm. Oh, I see. Okay. That's and then. Yeah, I see up top it says the short ones on the left are for nouns, but then long or modified are for, for states. I'm assuming like states of being, maybe? Uh, that has to do with his verb system that mm. I didn't ever fully comprehend. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's in it's in the next section, so. Yeah. Cool. Reading, reading, reading. Um, he explains the different kinds of nouns. Uh, yep, 2.2.3. <laughs> um, he has lots of nice fun um, with his postpositions, including some that are reduplicated, which is nifty, even yes. though this is not the reduplication episode. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I like that possession has is sensitive to animacy. Oh, it is. Yep. The animacy of the possessum, not the possessor, which is an interesting switch. But yeah. that, that, that also reminds me of... Um, some of the Austronesian languages have those funky possessives. We talked about that with um, Kamakawi, which also has these different kinds of classifying possession. Mm. Pronouns are interesting. He he decided that there would be no third-person uh, personal pronouns, and that they just used demonstratives instead. Very common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there's first and second person uh, pronouns, but the then third person, you just use a demonstrative. Uh, which, yeah, it makes sense, because uh, a lot of t- times when there is a third person pronoun, it's derived from a demonstrative or something. Yeah, yeah that's, so. a, that's a very common path of, of derivation. Maybe in a daughter language of this, we will have, uh, we will have actual, he, he will have actual um, uh, third person pronouns derived from the demonstratives. And then he'll have or to use here, not. and then he'll have to use here and there to bolster the original demonstrative sense. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, if you're looking at here and there, what does that cross before the the first letter of the second one mean? Is that a, a like a morphine marker or something? Or oh, wait a minute, you're talking about here. It has the root ben, and it has a thing in front of it. Yeah, there's ben. So that's hmm. that's to me that is a a square root symbol, which means that's his way of notating a, a root. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's good. I was that was one of the ones I was not sure about. But then, if you look down below that box, um, it's like one like the it says locations are denoted by the compound we hue, um, and then it says the first point is benwe, and then comma, and then it's like a cross. Maybe it's an obsolete form. I don't know what the cross is for. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I wasn't sure if my uh, browser was just not rendering properly or what. I don't know. He he's using some some odd way of formatting things. Um, but the, uh, thanks for that. Ch- the square root symbol. I was curious about that too. But that's nice. The different er- interrogative pronouns for inanimates and animates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the little daggers appear to indicate um, archaic forms. Okay, daggers oh, probably okay. better part of the cross. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a. It, it, a lot of uh, suffixing on. Uh, I'm looking at the verbs and states, so there's all they're all suffixes, and then um, I know earlier I saw suffixes. What was the other? Hmm. Okay. Now what it? What the heck is this? This verbal state, negative <laughs> adverbial, negative adverbial. I think I can guess what it is, but like conjunctive compound. Well, it, there are examples has, underneath. It has a bunch of. Verb endings that some of them I know what they are and some of them I don't. It's kind well, of... he gives examples which I'm thankful for. Yeah, that's it. he has a lot of examples, not so much uh, explanation. I'm just not. I just haven't read through this. I should have done that beforehand. But uh, looks like um, a lot of work went into this. I'm really. It's very nice. Yeah, and it's still being developed, which is nice yes. for languages we're looking at. It was updated just this month. Beginning of this month. Yep, May 2012. Yeah. 
Well, we could go on talking for a long time on this, uh, but I think we can, I think we may want to sort of uh, cut it short here because we're all kind of uh, stumbling <laughs> around trying to find interesting stuff. There is a lot of cool stuff. It, it is very nice. I like it. It's, One uh, or two bits. I have a hard time understanding. There are three biggish texts at the end. Um, some of which are very highly annotated, so that's an easier way to get a feel for what's going on in some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, why don't we move on to a feedback? We got an email from Alex. He says, Hey everyone, my name's Alex, and I'm a conlanger and a regular watcher of your podcast. Cool. Which I adore, by the way. And I had a question. I'm making a conlang which isn't ready to be seen by other human eyes, but I've hit a bump. The mm-hmm. language will be either OSV or OVS, but the subject is often excluded due to the community of fictional speakers focus on what is done and who's affected more than who performed the action. My mm-hmm. question is, is this a logical sentence structure? I don't know about... A- Exotic syntax, and I want to make sure it's not illogical. The language marks verbs for clusivity, number, and evidentiality. What do you think? Do you have any tips? Well, I'm going to say OSV and OVS are... There's no reason to call them illogical. Yeah. They're they're just rare. Yeah, uncommon does not mean illogical. Yeah. And the, I, don't, I don't really like the... The, the, that he's saying illogical necessarily because I don't think of language as being something logical. I mean, yes, it's logical in a sense that in the way that you have grammar, uh, you have grammatical rules that build the, the syntax of a phrase and such. And, and there's a certain logic to that, but it's not really Language is not logical in the way that mathematical theorems are logical. Mm. No. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Um, I, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Mike, while I continue to think. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going <laughs> to say that um, maybe he's thinking of, I don't know if this is one that will ever be, you know, opened up to other people for learning's sake. But as far as ease of learning, if it's not very clear when it's OBS or OSV, or if it seems kind of complex to explain, that might be a little bit harder. But so long as I think that so long as the conlanger has a feel for what they want to do um, and they're consistent, I don't think that makes it any you know a necessarily bad if it's a little bit complex. But if you're going to make something that you want to open up to your friends to learn, if it's a little complex, be be prepared to explain why they're wrong and how it can be better written. Okay. Um. So I. I- I'm thinking that um, he just ha- has not decided what the base word order will be. I think that's true. It's either so, going to be OSV or OVS, yeah. Okay, I thought he was going to choose between the two. Like, have no. both of them active as that. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I don't no, think so. That, I don't think so. That would be a little crazy. So, for me, the question is, what it seems to be the question that he's asking is, can you be pro-drop and still have either of these syntaxes and have it work yeah what i thought he was saying was that he was saying that osv is situation a ovs is situation b and based on the circumstances of whether it's no i think he just hasn't decided yet his main Uh. issue is whether you can have i think his main issue is whether you can have an object subject language that is pro drop which doesn't i don't i don't see a problem with that the only, if you're going to have OSV and you are not doing case marking, mm-hmm. then there might be some potential confusions because always yeah. something is going to be coming before the verb. Um, and while they may sometimes exclude the subject, it is not always going to be excluded. So there's an interesting confusion there. Um, yeah. I don't see why this would be fatal. I think either OSV or OVS would be fine with ProDrop. My suspicion is OVS will be a little bit easier to think about and learn because uh-huh. you have one thing that's before the verb and one thing that's after the verb. 
especially if you don't have case marking. If you have case marking, then do whatever you want. Here's a question. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is if it's worth looking at it this way, but for intransitive verbs, um, does the order of the S and the V usually follow for intransitive and transitive, assuming you're going with uh, nominative accusative language? Um, you can get something that looks like syntactic ergativity, where a transitive verb and an intransitive verb have somewhat different default word orders. Mm-hmm. I have I have seen that in natural languages. But he has made no sounds about doing that, so that just would be confusing. I wasn't sure if maybe it would be easier if, if he thought about how his intransitive verbs are um, to use that kind of like um, order for transitive verbs and just have your uh, subject be dropped whenever it's necessary. Not necessary. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think that adds an interesting complexity to the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if if that's what he's going for. I Yeah, I, I don't see how this would be fatal in any instance. The only thing, I mean, something, we have a natural language like Japanese, which is insanely not just pro drop, but it, it's everything drop. <laughs> and they yeah. manage to communicate, although speakers do regularly have to ask the person they're talking to to clarify what the hell they've meant. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Um, sometimes you can actually drop too much and you have to be like, what? Um but I, I really don't see any problem with either of these word orders being pro drop. And especially, like I said, if you've got case marking, no problem. Easy peasy. Now, writing an OVS and OSV, that does that uh, assume it's going to be nominative accusative? I don't think there's any assumption that you can make about those word orders. They're so rare anyway in natural languages. So Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I guess it also depends if you have um, – if your verb is inflecting – then it might give you a little bit more, especially if you have polypersonal agreement. Right. Although it, he says he marks verbs for clusivity, number, and evidentiality. So that's a bit... Is it just for subject clusivity, number, and ev- evidentiality? Or I would assume so. That's yeah. 99 times out of 100. That's exactly what people mean. If it's polypersonal, that's exciting, and people tell us. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I want to say is he's talking about the subject is often excluded due to the community of fictional speakers focus on what is done and who's affected more. Um, I, yes, oh, I, was, I, know. I was thinking William about this is, is, is fixing his thing. I was well, thinking about like this speaker speakers focus on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to say that it's perfectly fine for you to have sort of odd Worfian things going on. But you you don't want to uh, go too far with those kind of things because at some point you, you can start to sound a little weird. And, but you know, uh, if, you, if you want that, I mean, it's 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 totally up to the conliner. Yeah, that is like, true. You know, I re- I don't want to because it's it's unusual. Is no reason to shy away from it if you feel like that. If you want to stick with it, I just say be consistent with whatever you go with. And if yeah. you know, because if you're if you do like. Half your sentence is one way and half them the other way and with no main idea of why they differ, then it might make it more difficult to build upon that foundation later on. It might lead to a very unstable, um, you know, development. I'm just saying that I always think um, you want to be careful when you're saying that the grammar of, of the language is a certain way because the speakers are a certain way because... The correlations are don't always the because things don't always work out quite that way. Culture can affect grammar, but it's kind of very subtle effects. Yeah, I mean this is it's a little bit interesting. Most of the time when people are talking, their focus is on um, the hierarchy of attention is based on things that are interesting to us. So we care much, much more about what people are doing than we care about, you know, items and sticks are doing. It sounds like it's more of a, when he says who, uh, what is done and who is affected more than who performed it. Sounds almost like a pat, like it's very, like they prefer the passive. It's um, well, no, no, like D, no, you don't think so? No, because the passive is meaningless in, in this sense, because, um, because you, the, all the passive does is prime who's affected. And if your entire verbal system is designed around raising the effectedness, then once again, we're back to an Austronesian system, not yeah, necessarily just, a, a passive system. 
Oh, I was just saying, maybe I yeah. used the wrong term there, but I was saying that it seems a lot more like they care about, you know, the table was broken rather than who broke it. Sure. I mean, and that's a cultural thing, maybe, that doesn't have any grammatical tie. So it's just, you know, um, yeah, I was just saying that it seems like maybe that's the way he's saying his people do. So that's the background of why he's looking at this kind of formation in question. Yeah, he has. I mean, that could be the reason that he wants an object uh object subject language rather than uh something more common or i oh, would but sorry. i mm-hmm. just wanted to bring that up because i it feels like wh- whenever somebody says uh oh my language does this because my uh con people believe this i always think about it i think really hmm. would that particular belief actually lead to that particular grammatical construction maybe you should think about that a little bit but you know but, what i'm thinking i'll go on mm-hmm. sorry but that's just my my thoughts on that um but anyway uh, i was gonna say my, um mm-hmm. no go ahead i was gonna say maybe it's less of the because the people think this the language follows and it might be more of the language is this way and the people have their brain, you know, they're used to thinking this way. So that was, maybe it's not the chicken came before the egg, but the egg came before the chicken. Well, the way well, he asked the question, it's the other way around. Yeah, so. And that's even more problematic. Yes, that anyway. takes us into Warfianism, which will make my hair explode. And uh, I want to say that. <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> um, and, and we've seen my baldness. I do not have more hair left to explode. So no Warfianism, please. <laughs> Alex could be a girl. Okay. I just wanted to say that. So in case, by saying he, it's wrong. My my apologies. Doesn't necessarily say. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I mean, the core of the question, I think there's no problem with. But obviously, we had fun free associating because there's, we don't know entirely what you're saying. But we have a lot of good yeah. ideas for you, no matter what. <laughs> you're right. I like but, questions like um, this, but examples are helpful. And in short, to answer your question, we don't see any real problems with having a an OVS or or OSV um, language that is also prodrop. So or that also regularly drops subjects. That right. that is right. Say. it's it there if for the OSV there might be ambiguities that are, arise, but as William said they are non fatal. So um, anyway, I think we can wrap up this episode uh, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? No, not today. Mike? Um, no. Awesome. Yay, con lines. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to say happy con lane. You have been listening to Con Langry. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangry.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Um, what else was I going to say? Do, do, do. So sorry about yesterday. I was, I was totally like, was like, oh, I don't have work tomorrow, so it might not be, must not be Sunday. <laughs> so my logical um, sound, my conclusion was not. Uh, That's the problem there's... with logic is that it will perfectly happily um, process complete nonsense. Oh no, the poor little hawks are getting rained on. <laughs> the poor little hawks. Yeah, we have on one of the buildings here the hawk, a hawk built a nest. It's funny because you pronounce that you. I don't hear the caught the caught caught merger, or I do actually. Hawk. And how you pronounce H O C K? Hawk. Yeah, because I say hawk and hawk. How are you, George?
That's fine. I say hawk and hawk. Jersey R. Yes. Because you are Jersey guy. Yes, I am Jersey. Hear me roar. Because um, so much of my family were dairy farmers, to me, Jersey means first and foremost a kind of cow. The idea of a roaring Jersey cow, though, is kind of alarming, so... (laughs) In more ways than one, because I would think that would be, first off, very strange. Second off, why are they roaring? They're kind of uh, aggressive, then. Yeah, cows should not be lively and engaged. Yes, that's that's what we call them. They're 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 feedbacks. Uh, and there's small children in the house, and I have um, uh, turned my ankle. So, what were you doing yes. when you turned your ankle? Well, Henry, my uh, nephew, wanted to race, and as I was running, I turned my ankle. I stepped into a hole. Hey, I know what happens when you do that. Me. Yes, last fall I screwed up and had to have surgery to repair tendons in my foot. Ooh. Yeah, my 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 injury is not that severe. It just should take a couple uh days of healing up maybe. But um it's just that my left ankle is fairly weak mm. and easily turns. Top no running and conlanging for you. It's funny, like, I, uh, in order to make sure that my, my, my feet, foot was somewhat elevated, I wrangled, somehow, with one leg, wrangled my sort of easy chair I have in my room up to the computer, and I'm sitting, like, sideways in this awkward position. I just wanted to say something when you said non-fatal. I'm imagining someone dying and the coroner saying cause of death. It was another calm line. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But, uh, yes. I feel really out of it. You you sounded a little bit out of it in the beginning. Like yeah. I don't know if it was before or after we started recording. I think it was before, but... Did we, are you on pain meds or something for your ankle? No. that I haven't gone to a doctor or anything. It's just... Um, I, for some reason, uh, ended up switching from... Uh, nocturnal to diurnal for today, and Mm. I'm in a weird state. Whoa, the sky's all bright and stuff. 